In our first episode, we noted that The Merry Wives of Windsor has long been popular with audiences and unpopular with critics. In this episode, we'll explore what has attracted and angered readers about this play with Dr Will Tosh, research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe. From the sort of early 19th century, you get that slightly sort of frustrated line from critics and scholars, or lots of them, that say words to the effect, look, if this wasn't by Shakespeare, we wouldn't be bothering with it. But actually, it only takes a cursory glance at The Merry Wives of Windsor to realise that this is absolutely at the centre of the Shakespeare canon in terms of the themes that he's exploring, in terms of the comic and dramatic structures that he's using. So I think there's been there's quite a lot of catch-up with Merry Wives of Windsor um, over the past couple of decades. And what's really helped in the past sort of 30 or 40 years is much more attention by feminist scholars who draw attention to the power structures in sort of bourgeois, middle-class Windsor and those power structures that are held up by and often kind of controlled in many ways by the women, by the middle class women, the the wives themselves. With its Windsor setting, Merry Wives does something that almost no other Shakespearean plays do. It takes us to a real place. So there's this useful uh, critical phrase that's developed for some early modern drama, which is place realist, where you get playwrights writing for London commercial audience with very recognisable contemporary London settings. And Shakespeare is very much not part of that party. With the exception of the histories, he doesn't write plays that are set in a recognisable England overtly. And Merry Wives of Windsor is very different because he does seem to be doing what those other place realist playwrights do, which is to use almost a pin and just kind of stick down a particular place and time and group of people and tell a story drawn richly and in great detail from their lives. So in The Merry Wives of Windsor, it's a particular town and location, town quite well known to lots of Londoners. It's not far from the city. It's a site of a royal residence. We have lots of references to recognisable bits of Windsor and the surrounding area. So Datchet Mead or Frogmore, lots of sort of accurate place detail in The Merry Wives of Windsor, which sets it apart from some of Shakespeare's other plays. But the small, prosperous, middle-class town of Windsor does more than add a realistic setting to the play. It asks us to see a new kind of significance in the middle class itself. The social theorist Friedrich Engels was even drawn to comment on the play in an 1873 letter to Karl Marx. There's that wonderful, famous quotation, the first act of Merry Wives of Windsor contains more life and reality than all of German literature, which I'm sure is not true. But there is something there about the vividness of small town English life and a sort of, I mean, to use a sort of Marxist kind of term, on bourgeoisation, really, isn't it, of English civil society. You know, we're seeing, by no means a complete, but a sort of first flush of the real focus of English civic and cultural life being middle class rather than aristocratic. And actually lots of Shakespeare's plays do, you know, yes, of course, he, he writes plays about aristocracy and nobility and royalty, but he is bidingly interested in the activities of the merchant middle class, which is a class he comes from and he knows incredibly well. He's never just an artist in London. He's always also a landowner and a business person and a money lender and a grain hoarder 
and all sorts of things in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is an analogous community to Windsor. So that sense of bourgeois provincial life that he's writing about is something that he knows intimately and associates himself with. It's a sort of beginning putter of a, a movement in English culture that sees the rejection of court values for the sort of more sober kind of middle-class values of, of propriety and property, and which in Mary Rise of Windsor is fortunately shot through with good humour and wit. And Shallow has this great line when he says, though we are justices and doctors and churchmen, we have some salt of youth in us. We are the sons of women, Master Page. I think that's really revealing because it's a sort of cry of middle-class sort of uh, significance. It's saying that there is storytelling merit and there is thematic interest in the doings of people who are not elite. But in some eras, the play's association with the middle class, and especially the triumph of its middle class women, was exactly what readers disliked. There is this legend that becomes attached to the play from the early 18th century that Merry Wives of Windsor resulted from an instruction from the Queen who had said to Shakespeare that what she wanted was to see a play in which Falstaff was in love. There's absolutely no evidence for this. And I think it's also a kind of unconvincing story because it emerges in critical discourse kind of at precisely the time or a bit earlier that people turn against the play for its middle-class bourgeois qualities and the fact that Falstaff, this sort of wonderful comic creation, is bested by a couple of middle-class women. And precisely as critics start going, oh, I don't really like that. I don't really like the kind of politics of that. I'd rather Falstaff didn't get humiliated and, and, and abused by these housewives. You get this story that associates the play with court culture and that says, oh, no, 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 it's not really a kind of knockabout provincial story of ordinary people. It's actually got this kind of glittering association with royalty. That just seems to me sort of too obvious, doesn't it? You know, like it, it, it needs that kind of patina of court connection in order to make it acceptable. And I don't think it does. The play is more than acceptable on its, on its own terms. Falstaff didn't begin his dramatic life in The Merry Wives. He first appeared in Henry IV, Part One. In the history plays, Falstaff tends to dominate his scenes as a comic master. And so, some critics object, he could never be duped by a pair of middle-class women. But in fact, the Falstaff of Henry IV creates his comedy in much the same way as the Falstaff of Merry Wives. This is quite a similar character. I think of the Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One, who is held up and terrorised and humiliated by Poins and the Prince at Gads Hill and flees and gets beaten and comes back and tells a whole load of lies about what he's been through and go, well, actually, do you know what? That's kind of quite a Merry Wives setup. The difference being that in Henry IV, Part One, it's a prince who does the tricking and the gulling, and in Merry Wives, it's two middle-aged women. And I think that does make a difference to, that has made a difference to critics, where they go, oh, they sort of, they sort of recoil from the Merry Wives version and go, oh, isn't it tawdry? And it's not really, it's structurally the same thing. 
it just there are different people doing the tricking. So I'm very inclined to see this as a as a kind of a reversioning of Falstaff, but but in some senses a continuation of the character and the character type. Falstaff also shows a playful mastery of language in both plays. In Henry IV, Prince Hal might best him in a trick, but Falstaff matches his wit with a gleefully inventive stream of insults. Splud, you starveling, you elfskin, you dried neat's tongue, you bull's pizzle, you stockfish. In this play, Falstaff's energetic invectives are directed against Ford. Falstaff, this extraordinary comic creation, who, who is just as funny here as he is in the two Henry IV plays and has a wonderful, a kind of repetitively impactful way of speaking that I think is part of his wit and part of his memorable kind of quality. He calls Ford a poor cuckoldy knave, a jealous wittily knave, a cuckoldy rogue. Falstaff is given this brilliantly self-important poeticism, even when he's speaking in prose. And he's also allowed to be this overblown, ridiculous, poetic lover who everyone can see through, but we enjoy that that over-the-topness nonetheless. It's funny to hear Falstaff's exuberant insults of Ford, but to Ford, these names are anything but comic. Since before the play begins, we learn he has a deep fear of being a cuckold. His jealousy plagues him and, it seems, his wife. There's a sort of mention of unhappiness in the Ford marriage, which you could really easily miss where Mistress Ford sort of implies that she's already had to deal with with Master Ford's jealousy. And when Mistress Page explains that she doesn't have that issue with her husband, Mistress Ford says, you are the happier woman. And I think that indication of unhappiness that comes from Mistress Ford is just, it's that kind of hint of something behind the sort of happy facade of the the wives of Windsor, which I think is, is worth noting and worth kind of acknowledging. In Master Ford's Jealousy, Shakespeare introduces a theme that he will explore in full tragic depth in other plays, including Othello, Cymbeline and The Winter's Tale. But in this play, the consequences of sexual jealousy and anger unfold in a different way, partly because they unfold within a community of neighbours and friends. In the presence of Master Page, we see that a jealous husband is not inevitable. And this is something we don't really see in the other more tragic explorations of male sexual jealousy. We have this extraordinary test case. Two women who are very similar in status and age, who are in receipt of precisely the same overture of affection in this letter that Falstaff writes to them. And from that point of identicality, Master Ford and Master Page respond completely differently. Um, And they have a conversation about it. That's what's sort of amazing. Master Page says, it's obviously complete rubbish. I'm not giving it a second thought. And Master Ford doesn't. He then goes into a sort of terrible tailspin of jealousy and, and, and fear. And Ford later on does acknowledge that it is a fault in him, that he is, he's got a kind of wire crossed. And then right at the end of the play, he does undergo a proper kind of reformation and affects a reconciliation with his wife, but not before those around him have pointed out that his behaviour is 
irrational. His friend, Master Page, asks what spirit was it, what devil suggested this imagination in him to think that his wife is, is being unfaithful. I mean, the fact that Falstaff is actually in the house at that point slightly undercuts the sort of outrage on the part of these other more sensible men. But I think we are, we're shown in, in Merry Wives of Windsor that terrible male sexual jealousy leading to retribution and violence is not inevitable. And it's also, I think, the responsibility and role of the community to call it out, as we see happening from Master Page and, and the others. There's something really fascinating about Shakespeare's exploration of, of jealousy here, because he doesn't allow it to overtake the play. It's comedy and it ends happily. But he shows the possible risks. He shows consequences. And he also shows how to deal with it. Just as Ford's destructive jealousy is curbed by the community around him, it's also ultimately the community that chastises Falstaff's offensive behaviour to the women. At the end of the play, more or less the entire community of Windsor gathers to teach Falstaff a lesson. And I think that's when we sort of see the community of Windsor closing ranks around the kind of honour of two respectable women, you know, of the town. The play presents a kind of positive sense of community order, which is also largely in the hands of the community. I think that's the key thing. This is not the kind of hand of authority clamping down. It's a collective sense of this is sort of how the town has kind of agreed to manage itself and... Falstaff is the sort of disruptor. That positive sense of community, Dr Tosh finds, is key to a successful production of this play. To stage Merry Wives, you need to find a setting that allows the characters and the audience to feel unified in a common celebration of their community and values. Merry Wives has been really popular on stage for, for a long time and for just as long as it's been unpopular with critics and, and some scholars. In recent times, the productions that have really worked are those that have lent into that sense of place realism that the play gives us and relocated it to some equivalent suburban, usually or small town setting, which is more instantly recognisable to a modern audience. The, the danger with, with when theatres do that, of course, is that you then get a rather mocking tone, a kind of mocking, a slightly vulgar or nouveau riche kind of, kind of world. And, you know, the play is doing so the opposite of that. The play is celebrating those values. So I think you have to land on a location where the people making the play and the audience are happy to celebrate those values. It could certainly be a scabra satire on terrible, small-minded, claustrophobic, small-town life. Absolutely. I think the play allows that interpretation. But I think that the shape of it, in terms of the sort of closure and continuation that, that the play provides, its kind of main tone, its main colour, is, is optimism and contentment by those final scenes. The final scene is dominated by the community of Windsor and the harmony they achieve. But the revenge plot that comes to a climax here was orchestrated by the play's two central figures, the wives themselves. The play's title calls them Merry, and they do laugh and joke, even about Falstaff's proposed affair. If he come under my hatches, I'll never to see again, says Mistress Page. But they won't let Falstaff or anyone say that a merry woman must be a dishonest one. I think really the outrage is about what they're taken for. And the women say that, you know, Mistress Ford says that at the start of the play when she gets the letter. What doth he think of us? 
you know, how dare he send these outrageous letters to two women who have barely ever met him? And later on, when they're kind of getting into the swing of their vengeance, Mistress Ford says, we'll teach him to know turtles from jays, where, you know, it's important that these women show to Falstaff that they're not anyone's, that that's not what they do, and they don't want to be taken for that, and they will teach him a lesson in exchange. They can, however, and again, another very famous line from the play, be merry and yet honest too. And I think there's something there about about a sort of sophistication and a knowledge which is not about sexual immorality or kind of bodily unchastity. And I think both, you know, Mistress Page and Mistress Ford acknowledge their sophistication, their awareness, their knowledge. They're not bashful about sex. They're not unaware of things. But they're damned if they're going to be taken as whores just because they like laughing and joking and they're quite sophisticated women. And so I think that that's what's coming through in their kind of pursuit of vengeance of a fairly kind of humorous kind against Falstaff. The small town of Windsor reflects a middle-class milieu that Shakespeare himself knew well. And the Merry Wives, older, sophisticated, with significant involvement in business affairs, represent a demographic that he also knew well. What they are is a pair of recognisably authoritative and respected bourgeois English women reflected in the audience of the Playhouse. Women made up a hugely significant part of the playgoing uh, audience in Shakespeare's England and foreign visitors would often remark on the presence of women, unaccompanied women, women visiting the theatre. English women were seen by foreign visitors to have a much greater deal of social freedom than women on the continent. And, of course, women were also centrally involved in businesses and trade in London and elsewhere. And although we don't really get a sense of what Mistress Page and Mistress Ford and their husbands do, there is certainly a sense of provincial prosperity of established kind of householding and home-owning power and um, security that comes out in the lives that, that they lead. And I don't think Shakespeare used his plays as a sort of sketchbook for autobiography. But I do think it's... I think the world that Shakespeare is depicting in Merry Wives... It just isn't a million miles away from the provincial kind of middle-class prosperity that he knew in Stratford-upon-Avon. And a lot of that stability and comfort and prosperity and wealth that Shakespeare enjoyed was managed, we assume, by his wife in Stratford, who was not just a wife sat at home waiting for her husband, but was a business manager of quite a substantial urban estate. Mistress Quickly says of Mistress Page, Never a wife in Windsor leads a better life than she does. Do what she will, say what she will, take all, pay all, go to bed when she list, rise when she list, all is as she will. Mistress Page seems to enjoy a considerable degree of economic and social freedom. And this would not make her so unusual in Shakespeare's time. Many lower and middle class women produced and sold goods and managed their family's financial affairs. Sir Thomas Smith wrote in The Commonwealth of England that English women have for the most part all the charge of the house and household. 
Falstaff's whole plot is premised on the fact that the wives are in charge of the money. But Smith also reminds his readers that English women are under the power of their husbands. Single women could possess property and land, sign contracts and enter into lawsuits, but they lost those rights when they married. And no woman, married or unmarried, could receive a university education or hold public office. Officially, women had very little legal or political power. The notable exception, of course, was Queen Elizabeth, who ruled England from 1558 to 1603. The play directs our attention to this figure of female power during the scene of the fairies, when Mistress quickly appears as the Fairy Queen, an allegorical representation of Queen Elizabeth. The fairies sweep and clean the nearby Windsor Castle, one of the Queen's royal residences, because, says one fairy, our radiant Queen hates sluts and sluttery. Smith grants the authority of women like Queen Elizabeth, who inherit royal titles by birth. But in general, he says, we do reject women as those whom nature hath made to keep home and to nourish their family and children, and not to bear office in a city or commonwealth. Mistress Page and Mistress Ford do possess some unofficial autonomy, but Falstaff's plot threatens it. When Ford comes to search the house for Falstaff, Mistress Page tells Mistress Ford, defend your reputation or bid farewell to your good life forever. If Falstaff destroys her husband's trust in her, he also destroys the good life, the freedom that her husband allows her. In the play, of course, Falstaff is thwarted and Ford's trust is restored. Pardon me, wife, henceforth do what thou wilt, he tells her. But outside the playhouse, some women were already starting to protest that their freedoms shouldn't depend on what men allow them. In the 1580s, 1590s, into the 1600s, there is a kind of articulation of proto-feminism from women writers who begin to draw attention to the fact that English law and society is grotesquely patriarchal and grotesquely unfair when it comes to women's rights. And obviously a language of feminism and women's rights postdates this era, but the feelings that generate those political changes don't postdate this era. They are there. I think we're seeing a little kind of glimmering here of Shakespeare's sort of awareness of that as at least a kind of political or kind of philosophical, ethical idea that actually do you know what? It, there is going to come a time when, when women assert their legal rights. And it will involve people like Mistress Page who know what's what and are kind of willing to stand up and do something about it. In our next episode, we'll look more closely at the play's proto-feminism. We'll also explore its tragic and comic extremes in key speeches from Ford and Falstaff. 